Hi, I'm Dr. Don Welch, licensed marriage and family therapist, and welcome to the My Therapist Says podcast, where I moderate discussions between various relationship experts from medical doctors to licensed mental health professionals to enrich relationship skills and communication. This podcast seeks to bring healing and hope to what matters most in our lives, our relationships. If you would like even more content or to speak with a therapist, you can visit us at www.enrichingrelationships.org. Thank you and enjoy. Well, good evening to each and every one of you. Thank you for being here right on time, and we are going to get started right on time. My therapist says I'm Pastor Don Welch, the counseling pastor here at Skyline. This is going to be a very, very wonderful evening. Uh, This particular topic is really unique to each and every one of us, and my hope as we move into this topic this evening, we'll begin to see how much perhaps we were impacted by our childhood, good, bad, or indifferent in in, in a way and how important that is. Jesus spent a lot of time talking about children and how we should protect them and how if they're not protected, perhaps what can happen and to be nurtured and cared for uh, in His gracious love. So thank you for being here tonight. We pray that you will be open to what God may speak to you. And as we work here this evening, I'm always extremely proud uh, to introduce our panel members. Before I do, in just a moment, would like to invite you to think about the 3 five, three by 5 card. And you have it in your hand. If you have a question, and maybe you filled that card out, and you have the question written out about how something from that parenting or early on in life, it will broaden past just parenting this evening, of course. But if you have that question written out, would you just hold it in the air? We do have our host that could come by and pick that up. Some of you are thinking about that question. So at any time from this moment forward, if you do have a question, just write it down on a three by five court, hold it up in the air. And one of our hosts will come by and pick that up and bring it to me as the moderator this evening. Also, I might mention that if any time you would like to interact with with me and our panel members, just raise your hand without the 3x5 card, and we will bring a microphone to you. We just would invite you if you would not use perhaps full names because we do audio tape each and every one of these. We have more than uh, about five months, excuse me, five years rather, and a number of months of audio tapes of these presentations. So if you'd like to go on our website at skylinechurch.org, you can pull up a number of these, if not all. At this point, they're all downloaded and ready for you to share with others. We have people around the world who actually listen to them by linking to the Skyline Church org our website. Uh, fabulous. Uh, they're free, which is nice. And what's wonderful about this is you have uh, like a therapist in your living room, four of us here this evening, and uh, I hope that you will really benefit. And we've been praying that God will minister through us and through you as we join together working on this very, very important topic. May I have a word of prayer? I'll just briefly introduce our panel members this evening and our presenter, and then we'll go into the evening uh, discussion and presentation first, but then a lively discussion, I'm sure, as we move through the evening. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to be here. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege. You, you really said that uh, to let all children come unto me. You, you really love uh, children. In fact, you call us your children. In fact, you, you thought so deeply about it that you said you're going to actually adopt us 
and you're going to spill your blood on our behalf so that we are fully adopted. You chose us first. You reached out to us first. You loved us first. You cared deeply about us before we were conceived because you created us. And so we thank you this evening. We pray your blessing upon these discussions. This perhaps is one of the most uh, powerful topics that I think we've done yet to be able to talk about this specific issue about woundings and how that impacts us and what can we do uh, to work through this, to work around it, and, and to be healthy as we possibly can. And most importantly, when we are healthy emotionally, we're able to embrace your abiding love. We assimilate it and it becomes part of us and we're changed forever and then we exude your love, full grace, full love that comes from you. So we bless you this evening. Thank you for your presence. Would you now come among us and would you speak independent of everyone else just to that person, each of us, this evening. And we will give you praise for what you accomplish. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I'm Again, I'm, I'm always so thankful I, I'm able to work um, with these wonderful people. And I was saying today we had a staff uh, Christmas party, and I, I was just kind of looking around at each and every person and, and thinking to myself what a privilege it is to work with uh, these exquisite human beings because each and every one of them, that, that was the feeling of so thankful that these incredible therapists, but then they're all skilled, um, which is wonderful too. And so thankful to introduce them. You've seen their bios. You can see Aaron Cragen, who is going to be our presenter this evening, and Debbie Wagner, um, her photo and background as well. Um, she has been with us on many occasions. And Roxanne Strauss, who has been with us also. And we're so thankful for all three of them. You're going to be delighted as to the discussion that takes place this evening. And what a great group here this evening. Aaron is going to be our presenter. And then once she completes that, we will then go into discussion. So do you by chance have a three-by-five card that you've written a question? If you just raise, there's several hands, well, at least one hand. Pastorally speaking, if you see one hand to go up, a pastor says, I see several hands because I'm anticipating other hands to come up. Reminds me when I was a senior pastor raising money every year, and I was assuming hands would come up before they came up. So pledging money. So anyway, we're not pledging money tonight, but we are uh, picking up these cards. So if you have your question, even before we get started, it will broaden and lead as you, thank you, as you uh, give us your question. So Aaron, thank you for being here to present. Thank you so much. Um, first of all, this topic is one of my uh, favorites and one that I'm very passionate about and I was grateful actually when I got the opportunity just a couple of days ago to get to present on this. Um, the downfall was that it's so, there's so much information and it's so, um, I'd say, it affects all of us in so many ways and to have to break it down into a 15-minute presentation kind of was, felt like so much. I thought, oh, 15 minutes, I need, I need a weekend at least to talk about this. But I'm going to do my best, or I tried to do my best to break it down so we can get as much as we can into this little bit of time. And so I'm, I make, uh, like I, I gave Donna the slides, uh, the slideshow yesterday, and there's going to be a few changes, but I'll let you guys know as we go along. Um, 
So healing childhood wounds from inadequate parenting. First of all, if you're human, you have a childhood wound. If, um, and a lot of times I think people just assume that when they hear, oh, childhood wound, that it's something, you know, uh, it has to be some, some kind of big sexual offense or, a, you know, you were physically abused or this or that. But everyone, once you're born, give a, you know, give a couple of, just any amount of time, everybody is wounded in some way, shape, or form. And so this first slide, I was going to read a passage from this book that was really life-changing for me. And so it's written there for you. It's called The Flower Garden, A Gift from the King. And I don't know if any of you have heard, I brought some books to share later, but it's called Leave the Mud and Learn to Soar, a workbook for women. Though it was kind of long, and it, though it expressed kind of the process of being wounded and then all the way through to the healing process. Instead, I decided to share a little bit of my own personal experience because I thought that's kind of more of what, what I like to come to in, in these kind of things. So first of all, I was thinking, huh, what kind of, what, what impacts me? Well, I was thinking, I know when I was born, my mom had to go to work when I was three weeks old. I have no memory of that, though I do know later in life, there was always this sense of um, feeling like, like, you know, that this sense of ne never feeling like I was safe and always feeling like my mom's never going to be home. And I remember when I was um, very young, you know, I just had, the, I always had this feeling like my mom was never going to come home. And so that later on, I, you know, I just assumed that that was a normal feeling. Well, later on, through different, once I identified some of these, quote, abandonment wounds, I had a memory of kind of being left in a crib. So that's like one type of a wound is being, you know, you can be left, left at birth, but it was something very unintentional. Um, now I'm going to take us to, uh, I mean, because that, that's something, like I said, very unintentional. Now my mom's intention, she had to work. My mom and dad, you know, she, she, was, she was doing the best she could with what she had, though she had to work because they couldn't make it any other way. And the people who were supposed to help her out and take care of me weren't available. So I was left with a caregiver that, um, that, that, like, that lived next door, but that person, come to find out later, they weren't taking care of me. So it was this kind of this cycle that then perpetuates and then leaves me with this sense that I'm never going to be taken care of. So let's go to the next slide, which is, let me see, okay, childhood memories. Now, for child, how many of you have, like, specific memories that bring you, that you can think of that, that tie, that, oh, okay, we have probably at least one, probably many, many more. But childhood memories, a lot of times, again, there's a, something that comes up and you know that you have an emotion that, does, that feels like it's from this moment, but then it's, it goes, 
it doesn't feel like it belongs to now, and it really belongs back to when you were little. And we're going to go back. Let, let's go to the next slide, and it'll kind of explain that a little bit more. Okay, these are ways we can be wounded. Okay, first of all, like I said, there's, there's different types of trauma. There is the intentional traumas and then the unintentional traumas. First of all, abandonment, abuse, neglect, intentional traumas, like I said, you know, left at birth intentionally, whether, you know, even through, maybe through adoption or, um, uh, you know, there's many ways we can have abandonment that are more intentional. And then abuse, hitting a child out of anger, demeaning a child, sexual assault. These are all intentional ones that, that we see very clearly. Neglect, leaving a young child alone, don't provide adequate care. And then, and then there's the unintentional woundings, which is more like, I would say, the stressed out mom. And these ones are kind of hard because, again, the intention are, the mom's intention is to give the best love to her child, but because of her state of being, she, she is do, she's, as she takes care of herself, she unknowingly is, is not able to give the child the best care that she can, and the child's getting messages that they're not okay. Um, left out by friendships or siblings. This is a wonderful example of abandonment. How many of us in here have been left out in some way or another, um, either in friendships, by siblings? You're left out, and then that leaves you one of those senses of woundings. Um, then we have the overloving, the abuse, overloving a child, and try, often to try to make up for the lack of love. And that often happens. That's again, that's one of these generational type wounds where sometimes if, if, if you didn't feel loved from your past way back when, make, you want to make up for it by over-loving your child, not realizing that, that and it's, that's giving a, a type of a wound. Okay, then, and then again, neglect, not noticing a child. And as we get into some of the consequences, this whole these uh, w ways of being wounded will kind of come all together. Okay, so how does a child learn to survive in these situations? So you can go, okay, oh, here's my little cartoon. Sorry, hope you, hopefully you can read that on there. It was bigger on my, on my slide point. So what happens is mom or dad, they react from their own past, goes into child. So as a child, we don't have the adult brain that you do now. So as a child, you can't say, oh, mom's just having a bad day. So she probably, you know, X, Y, Z happened to her. Instead, it goes into mom is mad. She doesn't love me. I'm not lovable. So that's where that goes into. So the way the child learns to survive, because mom and dad right now, they're like, mom and dad are God for us, because that's our representation. So in order to survive these situations where the, you know, the perfect God-like figure comes in and, and does these things that, that kind of, that, that don't fall into these, into love and nurture the way that God intended, is then we learn to not feel not talk and to not trust, to protect ourselves. And that's, go to the next one. 
Okay. So that's what, so in order, and in order to do, so that's one of the steps we take. So we don't feel, um, we don't have that ability to say, again, as a kid, we have, we put up this, we learn to feel what we've been told to feel. So all of a sudden we, instead of um, having our, um, we can't, it's not safe to feel like open and loving and, you know, the way we come into the world, we're all excited. And I always think of that commercial. I don't know if you guys were, were uh, if you remember this, I remember when I was a kid and there was that commercial on TV and the kid would run in the house and slam the door and say, Dad, Dad, I got two A's. And then the dad would yell at him. And this, it was a commercial about this. And then the dad would get mad that he slammed the door instead of hearing that he got the two A's. And then the kid was crushed. When then they had a next turn of events, which is another option when the kid runs in the house and the dad instead responds by saying, good for you, son. Because as soon as we hear, we want to come in with our hope and joy and excitement to our parents and to our loved ones. But then as soon as we learn that we bring our, our open-hearted selves to them and then they crush, our, our spirits get crushed, we shut down. And so we learn, as children, we don't feel, we don't talk, we don't trust. We learn to put on these masks. These masks, there's various masks that we wind up putting on. And so here's the outcomes. This is kind of, I won't say the, the, not the exciting part. So, oh, that is the next part. So what happens is we get these wounds that when the wounds fester like an unhealed, I think of like an unhealed broken arm, then we, we think we're doing okay. But a lot of times the outcomes are, you know, workaholism. Um, the outcomes of some of these wounds, I have a lot of them written down here. Codependence, um, you know, a lot of these disorders, as, you can, as we can see here, they're all listed. I'm not going to read them out. but So from these various things that we learn, we, we find out later in life, it's, it's most of the ways that we've learned to cope and be and function normally in society, yet our hearts and our, our souls aren't feeling happy and alive. We're just, a lot of times, our, the mask is on. And, and so we're, um, there's empathy, apathy, depressed, thought distortions, a lot of our addictive, compulsive behaviors, non-disciplined behaviors, intimacy, so many things come from these unhealed wounds. And then if you see on the left side of the outcomes are the causes. And this doesn't ab absolutely have to go side by side, but I kind of listed them that um, a lot of times, like a, if you're not allowed to express your emotions, which a lot of kids, once you're wounded, if that happens, you'll either take it out on yourself or take it out on others because you, you haven't been allowed to be free. So then you wind up either abusing yourself internally or then abusing someone else. Okay, now, um, the next slide. You can go ahead and put that up. So the next one, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, old rules. So again, a lot of times in our heads, so as adults, again, as protection from this chi these childhood wounds and places, we come with 
we learn to believe some of these old rules. And again, they're, they're ways to protect ourselves. And these rules are, feel how I say you should feel. Wait for my wants to see what you want. And they're, they're beliefs that protect the heart of this little child, the, the child that's in us. That's not right. Don't play, yell, move unless I say it's okay. And these are messages that often get translated through from the hurt, the hurt child. And again, I don't need to read them all. You can go ahead and take those with you. And what, what God has wanted all along was for these new rules to come into play, which is it's okay to feel what you feel. Feelings are the new rules, which are, you can go ahead and read those, but it's good to have wants. Eventually, that's where we want to get to. Whatever you see and hear is your truth. It's good to have fun and play. It's essential to tell truth. And basically, oftentimes when we're wounded, we get stuck with these old rules because they, 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 they keep us, um, they almost keep us safer protecting those hearts from being wounded again. Now on to the um, a little bit more exciting, the, the place where I think what we're here for is the healing process, not we're here, you're here for the healing process. Um, now, first of all, before we go into that, I wanted to share, um, there's a lot of people I've seen, and myself personally, who, who I've, who've, I've, I've kind of watched this, this process happen. Um, and one thing today, I was just, I had a client today, and I've seen her for a couple of years, and she came in, and and she and she brought up like a, a familiar sentence that her mom has told her for years. And she came from a very affluent family, felt feels like it was very successful, and in her mind, nothing seemed wrong with it. Like she, you know, like she she'd get actually angry with me because she she never wanted to look at her family. Like she's all, there's nothing wrong with my family. You know, they're perfect, and that's often where. A lot of us, especially when we have, you know, wounds, we don't want to go back to looking at that. She goes, my family's fine. She goes, my mom would always tell me, have no regrets, have no regrets. I've lived by that model, have no regrets. And so today, she came in and she goes, you know that, that sentence I was telling you? She goes, that model of, you know, have that mo motto, have no regrets? She goes, that, is, that motto is wearing me out. She goes, I'm I can't, living with that, she goes, I'm not living, I'm not satisfied anywhere in my life. I'm miserable. No matter what I do, I'm not happy, I'm not happy because I'm just thinking about, I'm regretting everything. I'm regretting my future, I'm regretting my past, I'm regretting my present. Nothing's enough, nothing's enough. And it was from that one sentence, that unintentional sentence, that her mom, in her best, her mom's best of intentions, because her mom had regrets, and her mom didn't want her kid, her mom desperately didn't want her kids to have regrets. So her mom put it in, in her kids' heads, all I want to tell you guys is never have regrets, don't have regrets. Well, my client, because of her personality, her temperament, whatever it was, took that piece of information, it went into her heart somehow, some way, and got twisted and skewed, and it has like really made her life hard and challenging. And so now, after a couple of years, she's finally looking at that and saying, my gosh, you know what? That belief 
that believing that and having that truth is making me miserable. And I'm using that example because a lot of times, again, we think it has to be this, I was molested at age three, it's, you know, killing me. And it, but it can be as simple as, as th these beliefs that, that just follow us forever. Yet our whole, her whole life experience from there has been that she hasn't had any joy in her life because she can't enjoy anything because she regrets everything. And there's many, many, many more stories like that. You know, I have another woman um, in the healing group. We're actually, we actually have a therapeutic healing group. She's 52, never been married, um, has never been in a relationship. And she was told many years ago, very just kindly by her mother, oh, you know, honey, if you continue acting so emotional, no, one's, no man's ever going to like you, or no boy, no, no man's ever going to love you. At some point, it just went in. And now she's getting, you know, it, she was able to identify the feeling, identify that something in her stomach hurts. And that's where this healing process goes. My clients, they're willing to feel that discomfort. Anybody, all of us. When you're willing to feel, you notice that something's just not working in your life anymore. The patterns that continue on and on and on. It's not working. And then be willing to feel... Be willing to go, ask God, check it out. Whatever, however you want to go about doing that, be willing to feel. And then talk about it. And then with trusted friends, new, you know, new people, some, um, you know, there's many groups. There's many avenues to, to fulfilling this healing process. Though it's usually all within, it usually has to done kind of in, be done in the same pattern, and then trust, trusting that um, that you will that there is a better way, that there is a better answer out there. So it's kind of the opposite from where you started, which was don't feel, don't trust, don't talk. And you need to be willing to feel, to trust, and to talk. And like I said, th this information was so heavy. Um, there's so much stuff. I feel like I did not do it the kind of justice I wanted to. But I have, m there's many books, and I have some up here from Henry, Dr. Henry Cloud and John Bradshaw, Homecoming. And there's just many resources out there um, to ultimately, I feel like we all have the, an option to live very full the lives God chooses and wants us to have, very full, satisfying lives. And I just thank you for the opportunity to just briefly, briefly touch on this subject. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. A, a great start for this evening. And I think the first question that we have relates to maybe what it is to be more like parents. Um, can we move? Thank you. Let me move that here. I'll just move, move that stand. While I'm talking, uh, thinking of you as adults, that what we might start with is this first question related to uh, what it is to be a parent. Because oftentimes when we're speaking of children, uh, we do go to our childhood, but more often than not, I, I see people thinking about how have I parented or how do I impact the neighborhood children for the good or maybe what have I done to, what have I done rather to, to hurt uh, children. And this first question ties right into this. It's a very, very powerful question, and it's really focused on parenting. Can a child be wounded by parents who give or do too much, which you spoke about? 
can a child be wounded by parents who give or do too much for them? And how do parents recover from that? So you feel as though you have, if I'm understanding the question, you as a parent feels as though you have given too much and perhaps wounded your child. And how do you recover from that? So I'd like to start with that first question. I believe that's what it's asking. It's a really challenging question to begin with this evening, but I think we're, we're ready for it. Can a child be wounded by parents who give or do too much for them and how do parents recover from that? How would you respond to that? I think uh, the first thing is that, um, you know, being a parent, it is so hard to strike a balance. It's, 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 it's a fine line between, you know, giving too much and giving too little. And, of course, no one wants to be on the side of giving too little. And so um, there are ways in which giving too much can have a negative impact. Um, I try and stay away from judgment words, good, bad, um, you know, damaging all these kind of judgmental things. I think in terms of healthy versus unhealthy. Is what you're doing healthiest for the child? Is what you're giving, is this ultimately in the child's best interest? Or is it somehow going to, down the road, um, prevent them from being able to develop the skill or the tool themselves? So that's one way in which I see um, where parents can sometimes go off a little bit in terms of giving too much. It, is, it prevents the child from developing a skill or a tool or an ability um, because the parent is, is doing too much for them. How can the parent recover from that? Um, it really depends on how that has impacted the relationship. Has, that, has the child become resentful of something or has the child not um, is the child now, you know, somehow holding you responsible for something? Um, then there's repair that needs to be done to that relationship, and it's an acknowledgement of uh, maybe perhaps where you now recognize that something you, you may have done that you shouldn't have done, um, you know, and, and reconcile that relationship. That would be my suggestion. So should I, that's a very, very great beginning, because should I be nervous about apologizing if I do recognize, like you were suggesting, Debbie, that I've, I've made an error here, or I responded, or over-responded, or under-responded, like you talked about, Aaron, um, should I feel uncomfortable to apologize? Because I think that's a challenge, or to say I was wrong in the way that I responded. What do you think about that as therapists? I don't, I don't think it's ever wrong to apologize. I don't. I don't think that you can go wrong with an apology. Um, I think that can be very healing for a child to hear from a parent, you know, I'm really sorry for what I did. It may not have been in your best interest. At the time, I may have thought it was, but, you know, ultimately it wasn't, and, and I'm sorry about that. I don't think that that can do any harm. And I agree with it. Can I explore it just a little further? Because I've seen this in my office, and I know you all have too, at different occasions, where someone will say, but if I, if I really kind of put myself in a vulnerable position with my child or my adult child, then I lose authority in that relationship. Could we speak to that just to broaden that even a little further? It's, it's a feeling of risk, and I've heard that so many times. That's why I'm kind of staying on this for just a moment. What are your thoughts? I think just to continue on is that, um, you know, what are you really risking? Are you risking having um, the authoritative stance or are you risking respect? I think you can gain a lot of respect by being able to apologize. Um, 
if you know if the if you're in a position of authority um, that's going to require a certain amount of respect and if you can't acknowledge where you may have made a misstep uh, then that's going to interfere with the respect and the authority is already lost. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, yeah, as far as apologizing, I think we all need to uh, remember how we feel when someone apologizes to us. And um, we, even if we have adult children, we're still a model for our children. And so by apologizing, I think that you're still modeling um, how to apologize, and um, then it's on their part to forgive you. So um, I think that's a good, another way of, of modeling for even our adult children, that yeah, we make mistakes, and um, I'm recognizing my mistake, and I apologize for it. There's nothing wrong with that, I don't see. So you're even suggesting, Roxanne, that when we apologize or show, at least express that maybe we're in error, or maybe we responded in a way that we would not have had we more time to think about it, that when we offer that um, statement of, will you forgive me, then the child, even if it's an adult child, or a grandchild, that child has the ability to release God's grace through them to us. So it, it actually increases that abiding relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ inside of us because they're now releasing that to others. I have a, this affects me personally too, um, because I would have loved or to have my father actually um, apologize. And last year I was at his deathbed and standing there and I really wanted to forgive him. No, nothing serious, no, no physical abuse or anything, but I still needed to forgive him for inadequate parenting issues. Mm -hmm. And I never got that from him. I had to personally work through it with God and myself and, and forgive him. But boy, would that have been freeing. Would mm -hmm. it have been wonderful for him to actually apologize? But he couldn't. Mm, wow, powerful. You know, in, in, in thinking of what we just started talking about this evening, that this particular question that says, what, how does the parent recover? I think we're talking about the fact that some parents, or maybe a lot of parents, may well live with um, quite a bit of shame feeling as though they're inadequate. I know one of the first things I try to suggest to parents is that you're a good enough parent. Because most parents have tried the best they could with the resources and skills they could, but yet they feel a deep sense of shame. Could we talk about that for just a moment, and then we'll move to the next question. But do you see that in your practices, that parents may well feel some shame that may prevent them. I'm not suggesting this of your father, Roxanne, but that may prevent them from becoming at all vulnerable or even ask for forgiveness or, you know, I'm sorry that I responded that way, a simple uh, asking for forgiveness. Do you see that in your practice, this level of shame? And this is where God's Word um, is so important with this concept of shame because shame is debilitating. Could we speak to that for just a moment? Then we'll move to the next question.
I think I talked so much, now we're not sure what the question was. But if I can go back real quick, I do that sometimes. Um, I'm this old professor and I realize that I just love listening to myself talk and others don't necessarily enjoy it as much as I do. And they're going, I have no idea where you went, but I think you had a question in there. The question is, how do our parents live, if they do, <laughs> live with shame and what do they, how, how, how do you help people with that? Because this is the question, how does a parent recover? One of the things that I work with um, with clients is to really um, understand the difference between shame and guilt. Um, shame is about who you are. Guilt is about what you've done. And so one of the, the a big process is coming to understand that, you know, if you've made an error, if you've done something, you know, that you really regret having done as a parent, um, that you can feel guilty about that, but it's, it, shame isn't, um, it's, that's about who you are. And so there's really no place for that in, in what, in this situation. And so um, it becomes a question of feeling guilty. And I work with, uh, you know, clients trying to help them come to a place of being able to forgive themselves. It's not even so much about getting forgiveness from their child, it's about being able to forgive themselves and be able to understand that, you know, it, it may have been a good intention that resulted in a bad outcome. And, uh, you know, you have to be able to forgive yourself. Hmm. Very good. This next question really leads from that, thank you so much, into specifics about a relationship between um, a parent and a daughter. I just asked my daughter if she felt we have given her any wounds in her childhood. She's a teen. She said no, but I'm wondering, is it possible not to recall a wounding? So that's the centerpiece of this, I think. Is it possible not to recall a wounding when you're young, but then realize it when you're older? So you don't realize it when you're young, but it, it somehow comes to the forefront when you're older. If so, what's usually the nature of these wounds since it's obviously not the blatant ones? We respond to that. One thing, um, it is possible to have a wounding and not to actually recall it um, in childhood development, um, especially early on. Uh, the the part of the brain that has to do with memory is actually not mature until about two or three years old, and so woundings can occur and the person can have the emotion around the wounding, but will not have the memory, the recall of it. Later on in life, what happens is that something triggers that familiar sensation, that emotion, and it's called implicit memory, okay, versus explicit. Explicit has language, and it, um, it has, um, uh, it's an, a specific event that you can recall. Implicit memory is based on internal sensations that go, that trigger a certain area of the brain. Um, and so it could be something as innocuous as, you know, um, somebody snapping at you and the certain bodily sensations that you feel trigger an old, uh, an old wounding. And oftentimes this is how we go about healing uh, traumatic things that happen in childhood is to understand implicit memory and, and how those wounds occur before there's language around it. 
Mm-hmm. Thank you. Other responses, thoughts about that? So we're, we're actually, we, we actually feel it. There's a somatic, excuse me, <clears throat> a somatic bodily response, but we don't have the capacity with which to remember it. And it may then be triggered later because it is stored yes. in the memory, mm-hmm. but it is then activated later. And then we might respond, how did I respond that way? Yes, because uh, any kind of wounding is stored in the central nervous system. And so that is stored somatically in the body. And so usually it emerges later on in life in something where you feel a similar sensation and you have, you have memory of that emotion. You can't quite place your finger on it. And that's where the work with the therapist helps because you're able to come to some understanding of where that implicit memory resides. So I had uh, I shared this illustration with um, our class, some of whom are here tonight, our To Become One class. My own father at age 15 was running the farm, and they grew peas. And they're in the middle of the New Mexico desert. And his older brothers were off to war. So at age 15, he was running, actually, the tractor night and day. And he was under the pressure of making that tractor stay alive, regardless and his parents were much older because he was one of the younger of the nine, nine children. And so he had this lot of anxiety um, having to make sure that he would keep his family from starving. We're talking about starving in the middle of New Mexico where there'll be great snowstorms and droughts. And then as a boy, as I would sit with my dad and we would work on projects, I didn't realize that I felt his anxiety because he felt all alone in doing projects. And then Robin, my wife, and I realized one day as we were talking, and I've been through lots of therapy, that sometimes when I'm in a position in the home where I feel like I'm the only one doing this and I'm all alone, I was triggered back to my childhood, somatic response. My father didn't try to create anxiety for me. He always encouraged me to join him. And I learned how to do a lot of things pretty well, except we have to pay twice the amount when I do a damage to things in the house that on a weekend warrior deal that I have to get someone to help me. But I can still feel that as an adult. And I think that's what you're referring to, that we can acquire these emotions non-intentionally. And that came down generationally. So my father uh, felt that anxiety for his family. He had no choice but to do it. And then I felt that a generation later. I believe that's what you're referring to. Okay. And Roxanne, you were going to add something. I'm sorry, we may have gone from that, but... No, well, this is a little bit different, but um, I was just, as I listened to that question, I'm, um, I I recognize that whoever asked that question is is, um, very brave to ask that question to a teenage daughter, because <laughs> I have a teenage daughter. And, and that, you know, that puts you in a place of vulnerability because she could, wow, you know, just come out with a whole bunch of things depending on what kind of mood she's in. So one thing that struck me was that was very brave and very open and honest and wanting to hear from your daughter, um, you know, what's happening with her. And two, just the other thing that I hear is there might be some anxiety that you might be doing something wrong and you might be, you know, um, uh, fearful that you know what you're doing might be putting her in a place that she's going to have some, 
you know, awful memories or something. So, um, you know, I guess I would just say, um, I commend you for talking to her so um, honestly and openly and, um, and to, um, it sounds like you're doing a really good job. So just wanted mm -hmm. to say that. Thank you. So even keeping those conversations going in relationship, sometimes it can be risky to do that. And you were commending the person who is keeping the conversation. It takes a lot of inner strength to keep those kinds of conversations going that can be difficult and, and challenging and even make us uh, vulnerable. There is a question that relates directly to this, and this is a relationship between uh, a person and a mother. As a Christian, how do I have a loving relationship with my mother who does not have a relationship with God and set boundaries even though she continues to wound me? This is a very good question, isn't it? Very common question, but unique to the person who asked it. When confronted on the behavior, she denies it and accuses me of misunderstanding and making things up. So that's the question here. As a Christian, how do I have a loving relationship with my mother who does not have a relationship with God and set boundaries even though she continues to wound me? When confronted on the behavior, she denies it and accuses me of misunderstanding and making things up. How would we respond to that question? I would first want to know um, what... Um, what is your definition of a loving relationship? I would want to un come to understand what your vision of that looks like. Um, that is a very um, general statement, a loving relationship, and really need to be more concrete about it. What would that include? What is it that you want it to be? What do you need it to be? And is that possible with her? Um, you know, if you are involved with a, a person who is unwilling or unable to recognize the ways in which they're wounding you, um, you know, is that, is that a healthy relationship? Is a loving relationship possible? Or are you having to minimize your feelings, your wounding, to be able to continue the relationship and to sort of pretend that what is occurring is not really occurring. Um, you know, it is, it is really difficult and it's a challenge when the person that you are trying to have a relationship with is toxic. And I think that's really difficult and as Christians, we don't often want to think that somebody could be so toxic as to not be someone that I can have a good relationship with, but you really need to find out, is this person capable of having a loving relationship? Is what, first of all, what does that look like? And is this person capable of that? I think you need to really um, determine what it is that you're looking for and if that can happen. So if we start, there's kind of three components to this, and I'm hearing you address this, Debbie. The, the expectations of what a loving relationship is and um, boundary setting, because it was saying, how do I set boundaries? But then the premier piece you were asking or suggesting, I believe, is, is this person toxic and can I have a relationship? Now, this is one of the difficult things. Let's try to unpack this for just a moment. One of the difficult things with biblical scripture is we already have DNA in us 
to have a deep desire to respect our parents. If you work with teenagers long enough, you really see it at the very deepest levels that even though they may come in, they may scream, they may flip off their parents, do all sorts of aggressive maneuvers with their parents, and then to see deeply how they are already DNA-wired to honor mother, mother and father. It's, it's the command. It's, it's a biblical principle. We see that, um, that that's there. But what can happen, though, if I can start, Debbie, with the first part of this that you were suggesting, or... or not suggesting, but telling it was very carefully crafted, is what do we do if the person is toxic? Because we already have, number one, the expectation that we would like to have a good relationship with a father or a mother or a caregiver. That's already there. That's a given. That's, unless the person has been so wounded that they are deeply hateful, and yet you see people, if you sit as a therapist does, that people who vehemently hate someone, a mother, a father, a caregiver, there's a lot of emotion because cutoffs in mental health, that's mean I'm just cutting you off, have some of the most ferocious emotional connections, even though they may be toxic. So with this, um, with expectations, let's talk for just a moment about what it means to want to have a relationship with a toxic person. And is that even possible? Because you, you not only alluded, but helped to walk us through that a little bit, Debbie. Yeah, and I think what's important, um, a really important component of that is if the person is, for lack of a better word, toxic. I really don't like to use that word. But if, they, um, if they're not capable of engaging you in that loving relationship, that first there needs to be some work on your end in terms of grieving the loss of that parent that you need them to be. You're gonna have to grieve that loss because it is a loss. It's a recognize, you need to recognize that it's not going to happen. What you want to have happen may not be possible, okay? And with that is gonna be some grief and you're gonna have to work through that grief. And once you have worked through the grief, there's a new understanding that develops. There's a new um, appreciation for who this person really is. They can't be this, but maybe they can be this and come to a new um, relationship with that person. It may not be as dynamic or as loving or as you know, nurturing as you had hoped it would be, but it can, there can be some sort of relationship so I begin to view the person differently when I do the grieving, which is so significant here. Can you, can you all help us to understand this a little bit? Because that's such an important piece. It's the centerpiece of Jesus and his life, a man of grief, knowing how to grieve. It's so important. Debbie, you're, you're indicating that we'll begin to view the person differently. So what happens to a person when we grieve? I'm, I'm grieving the loss of what I had hoped this parent to be, and that's not going to happen. What do I begin to see in the person? What's the next thing that happens when I begin to grieve? Grieving is somehow expressing the pain of my loss, correct? So what begins to change? And you, you're helping us to start to think about that. Well, when we, allow our, when we actually start grieving, it then allows us to see the person as they are. And as you said, I think so beautifully, I think through Jesus' eyes, I think because a lot of times... Again, we, we get stuck with wanting so bad for that person to be 
what we want them to be, especially if it's kind of, um, I'll use the term like the ideal parent that you never had. And so in grieving the loss of that longing, grieving the loss of who you want them to be, it'll allow them to be who they are and the acceptance of, you can actually see them as just, as, as, as the person they are from the eyes of more of, um, less from, I'd say, the child eyes, I'd say from the wounded child, I don't, mm-hmm. um, and see them maybe through Jesus' eyes and have a lot more compassion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, there would be a lot more compassion. So what you were suggesting is that if, um, if I'm wounded, I don't have a parent that has been there for me and I need to grieve it, that I might even more idolize, which is the first command, not to have images, I might idolize my parent and my expectation, Debbie, that you were suggesting would be kind of over the top. I have these huge expectations that I believe that parent should provide. So I might be more idyllic with that parent until I begin to grieve. Okay, that goes back to this expectation. Isn't it true with couples, one of the, moving just away from this for a moment and coming back to it, one of the first skills in marriage is to be able to begin to respect what I thought I was first attracted to, which I was, but now is an irritation for some reason. And I I learned to respect that person for who she, her, he is. I learned to say that is really them and I'm not really that. And I'm going to work at respecting that's how they respond or that's their likes or dislikes. So even in marriage, this expectation that you helped us to see initially is incredibly important if we're learning how to grieve the loss of an idyllic, hoped-for parent. Okay. Can we go a little further with this then? That's very powerful what you were saying. Yes. Um, I think for those of you who have been in Don's class with the, you've started doing a genogram. Mm-hmm. And um, I think after, you know, even while you're grieving or, or after you're grieving and you have this new perspective, um, the genogram kind of goes back generations and you, kind of, you look at your family, you know, your parents, your grandparents, and, and when you do that, you get a new perspective of your parent um, what they have been through and why you can get a new perspective on why have they parented me this way? Maybe they didn't know any better or they had been through some really difficult times as a child. And, and so I think it gives you a better understanding of who that person is and what they have had to deal with. And that gives you a better um, I, I think it gives you more empathy for that person, for that parent. And so um, that, that's just kind of the new perspective that we've talked about where we're talking about after grieving. You can actually have a new perspective of this person as someone who also was a hurt child or, you know, and brought that into their adulthood and as a parent. So um, I think that just brings a little more empathy into, and allows you to have that for the parent, um, and it might allow you to have a better relationship, deal with that relationship in a different way. And empathy is at the heart of health, am I correct? The opposite of empathy tends to be an access to disordered person, borderline, histrionic, um, OCPD, 
you know, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. I want it just perfect, narcissistic personality. We have a question here about narcissism. Could we real quickly then, so empathy, we are now, as we grieve, we are now having empathy for self and for this other person because we are now choosing healthily to view the person differently. Am I correct? And that's why Jesus said the greatest command is love your neighbor as you love yourself. Healthy empathy for self, this is what we're talking about, extends empathy to others. And some of the most challenged mental health people are access to disorders that I just mentioned, all of which have some level of a lack of empathy because their anxiety overrides their ability to embrace empathy to a certain level. Now, I'd like to get real practical with this because, Debbie, you let us out so well with this, and each of you is adding tremendous uh, insight into this. Give us some real specific ways to grieve because we talk about grief, and we as therapists assume that's a common practice by people because we, we are seeing people daily grieve, so we take it for granted. Let's talk specifically and get real practical. What are some ways that I could learn to grieve? Uh, maybe I've cried once in five years. Is that grief work? Or, you know, I, I, I get angry. Is that, am I expressing grief? What are some helpful tips and ideas? One thing when I uh, work with grief and loss is um, sometimes it's been helpful for clients. I, I give them a, a journaling assignment. And um, I start them off with the phrase, I'm letting go of and I let them take it from there. And where that ends up taking them is, you know, if they start out with that idea of I'm letting go of, it facilitates the grieving process. It enables them to go wherever they need to go. It's not, um, it's not so much about the, the process or the, the specific piece of homework that, you know, that I want to give somebody. It's about the process of what comes up, what comes out in terms of being able to ultimately let go of something. Um, that's one thing that has been particularly helpful with the clients I work with. Um, I often will have my clients um, write letters that they don't send, but usually to starting off either to a part of themselves or to a parent, um, and just parts of the parent. And I really try to have them isolate off, this may sound strange, but like the part of the parent that, that really hurt them in some way so that they know that we're holding on to the good part, mm -hmm. but so that the part of them can really write out like a letter of, of hurt and release of that. And that's one way that usually really starts a grieving process, but it's again with with actually writing that out and allowing that out and then bringing it in. Mm. These are great, great ideas. I just agree with that as far as doing something physically. Sometimes we think we, we you know, grieving is just crying or, and it's not necessarily, we don't have to evoke that kind of emotion. Sometimes what you guys were just talking about, journaling or writing or writing the letter or um, writing something down and tearing it up and getting rid of it, so that's a freeing, it, it helps to just, do that physical thing, um, whether it's writing or, or if you don't like to write, um, artwork, 
it, anything just to get it out and, and um, do something physically is a good way to grieve. I love Barbara Johnson's famous book, Put a Drain in Your Hat and Be Happy. And in her book, she talked about how she would grieve. She would get a, a, a cup of uh, iced tea. She would take some chocolate. And she would have a particular song that she would play. She'd go into another room, and that song or that, say, DVD might elicit some feelings so that it, it, it helped the person to get in touch with uh, the feelings and then to let yourself express them. I'm thinking of a thank you. I'm thinking of uh, another question that relates to this about grieving, but also a parent, uh, a mother in this instance, where the mother's biggest strength was also her biggest weakness, silence. We are aware that in mental health, that um, silence, the person who is silent yields the strongest stranglehold in the relationship. It doesn't mean that we will just babble or just voice things, but silence can be a real killer in a relationship. Um, as you know, the Holy Spirit is never silent with us. The Holy Spirit, God, is always pursuing us gently kind in a gentle way. And so, the idea of silence can be helpful when we're meditating, but this is a very powerful question. My mother's biggest strength was also her biggest weakness, silence. So, how can we start talking about issues or expressing issues when, brave, uh, when uh, bravery through silence was the only thing allowed? How can I break that cycle with my own kids? This is a really, really good question. My mother's biggest strength was also her biggest weakness, silence. How can we start talking about issues or expressing issues when bravery through silence was the only thing allowed? How can I break that cycle with my own kids? How would you respond to that? Well, first of all, I think just the fact that the person's asking the question is the beginning of the breaking the cycle or tells me that you are breaking the cycle. Um, and it's, I mean, I don't know if that means you already um, are choosing to try a different way, um, or if you find yourself doing what your mother did by using silence and deeming it bravery, but I think the fact that you're seeing that it actually was a weakness, um, and that in many ways maybe it was hurtful, um, to me, that, that right there, this speaks volumes that you're asking the question and that right now you do have the opportunity that you can maybe go against. It's almost sometimes I'd say fighting against those natural instincts because they're comfortable. Mm. And sometimes comfort isn't always good. It's just comfortable because that's what we grew up with. Mm. And so to me, the going against that and doing the opposite, maybe choosing to talk instead. That would be one suggestion. Yeah, um, I agree with that, um, definitely. The, um, the, the difficulty with silence is that that means that somehow you're holding it all in. You're holding on to it so tightly. And the, while remaining silent may appear brave. On the flip side of that, that also means there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear about if we speak about it, that this is too awful to speak about. 
and I'm afraid of what will happen if we acknowledge it, if we really start to talk about it. And so um, it's really challenging when, you know, when you hold things in, um, it doesn't enable real honesty in any, in any relationship. And so what I would recommend in that situation is that you be honest and that you start talking about it and ask questions. Questions are a wonderful way to just begin the discussion. You know, how, how did you feel when, when that happened? What, what was going on with you when you saw this occur? And just see where the conversation goes. It's just, um, and then also what's important about that is to validate whatever the person says they feel or are thinking and to acknowledge that, yeah, I can see how you would feel that way. Um, I felt this way, uh, you know, and just to kind of have an easy back and forth about a very difficult subject matter, um, but to find that it's, it's not that hard to have the discussion. And I think oftentimes the more silent we are, the, the scarier it gets and the greater the fear that, well, I didn't talk about it then and it's been weeks and so now it's too late or it's just maybe it'll go away or it's too big to tackle. Uh, the longer you stay silent, the bigger it gets in your mind. So I would really encourage um, just talking about it. Isn't that what happens in therapy when someone is talking and then at the end of the therapy session, we as therapists have uh, actively listened where we're listening and that validates the person and they get done and they go, wow, thank you for helping me. I've asked my students over the years, have you ever had a roommate that, or friend, you're listening to me and you're just going, uh-huh, uh-huh, and this is not what therapists do, but uh-huh, yeah, and that's all you say. And then at the end, they say, well, thank you so much. You've really helped me. And, and you as you know, a student, you go, I did nothing but say, uh-huh, what, uh-huh, you know, that kind of a thing. We don't do that as therapists, of course, but when you're listening, it's authenticating. I have another human being who's validating that what I'm saying may have some significance and that I could actually existentially consider it as valid or rework it or rethink it. There's a powerful question that was just raised by this person said, I'm a mature female. I love and appreciate my parents very much. My dad was distant and intimidating, not interested in me, and I did not bond with him. I have kept men at a distance. I have never been married. I'm in my 60s now and I'm still afraid of intimacy, parentheses, relational and sexual, in relationship with men. Into parentheses, sorry, relational and sexual with men. What are the chances of me having a marriage partner? Can I ever get over this? And this is a very, it's very painful to read this because there's a lot of emotion, and the per person who wrote this has a lot of courage by just asking this question from my perspective, reading it. What are your thoughts about this? How would you respond? First and foremost, the answer to your question is yes. It is, it is possible, for sure, without a doubt. Um, so I want to give you that hope because it is possible. It's going to take some work, but it is definitely possible. And probably what has occurred is that somehow his 
demeanor toward you, you internalized as something to do with you. And because of that, it's a very, um, it's a very complex dynamic that occurs when we internalize stuff because we then in turn project that onto other people and we respond to them as if that's their truth. And so probably your inability, I'm assuming there's an inability to have a relationship with a man is because of that very complicated dynamic that's occurring. And so it's going to take therapeutic work to be able to get underneath and behind what's occurring and to come to a new understanding of what your part is in that and how you can engage in a healthy relationship with a male figure, how you can work out what occurred between you and your father and not continue projecting onto someone else. But with the proper help, it is for sure um, an option in your future. Thank you. Another question that actually, that's well addressed, what you said, Debbie, thank you, is another question that really asks, I'm trying to get through a few more questions because of our time limitations. These are really important questions. This one talks a little bit about that as well from a different perspective. How can we work through never knowing why we were abused? In other words, the reason why we were abused. How does someone get their arms around the fact that they were abused? So straightforward, here's the question. How can we work through never knowing the why, quote-unquote, why we were abused? One of my um, specialties is trauma and working with um, abuse. And um, that is, without a doubt, the, the most difficult aspect of therapy, without a doubt, is coming to understand the why when you either... Um, can't get the answer from the person who abused you um, for several reasons. Either you don't have the relationship, the person has passed on, whatever. And it is, um, it is extremely difficult to come to a place of acceptance that the abuse occurred and to... Um, get to a place where the, it's not that the why doesn't matter, but it's that the why isn't so important anymore. Hmm. Because it's really not about the why, because the why has more to do with the perpetrator than it does with you. It is never, ever, in any situation, ever, the abused person's fault. And it has nothing to do with that person. Mm -hmm. It is always something to do with the person who's abusing. Mm -hmm. And so it is, um, you know, through our work together, it would be about coming to understand that there was something significantly wrong with this individual uh, for whatever reason. Either they were abused, because oftentimes people who are abused grow up and abuse. Um, that they turned around and abused. And, you know, I think it's just understanding that it, it's the why loses its importance. You come to a different understanding of it, and you're able to move on from that. 
And why does a person, and we see this frequently, at least I do, why does a person who's been abused somehow believe that they have participated in abuse, that they deserve somehow? That's because it usually happens in childhood. Mm -hmm. And one of the hallmarks of children is that they're very egocentric and it's all about them. And if, um, if something happens that goes bad, they somehow figure out a way, I don't know how, but they figure out a way to blame themselves. Mm -hmm. Somehow they were at fault. It was their responsibility. And this is where proper parenting comes in, that the parent, the healthy parent, picks up on this and they get a hold of their child and are able to help them work through and understand that, you know, it, it has nothing to do with you. It wasn't your fault. Mm -hmm. It's so important that that message is reversed as early as possible, as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes in abuse cases, that doesn't occur. And the child goes on to grow up and believe that somehow they were a participant or that something they did caused it. And it also kind of goes back to, uh, thank you, Debbie, for what you said, Aaron, that in a sense, because they're egocentric, as you're suggesting, it was very clearly true, depending upon, you know, the development of them, but certainly that's a, that's a pronounced piece, that there is a sense where adults are seen as God-like because we need nurture outside of ourselves as a child. And so there can be a sense that we uh, submit and that leads to perhaps um, self-effacing, in other words, self-shame in this process. This, this next um, question relates to someone who has experienced this kind of hurt, and we're running short of time. I think we'll get to this last question just real quick. Actually, we're just about out of time. I'm sorry that we're not going to get to all these. They're powerful questions, not going to be able to get to all of them, but how can one help an adult son whose dad abandoned him from birth and still is not available, perhaps dead by now, but to heal from emotional wounds. And what he does, he acts out, he smokes a lot, he drinks a lot, he's angry and uh, aggressive and depressed at times. This is a really tough question for us to answer very quickly, of course. But how can, how can one help an adult son whose dad abandoned him from birth and that's still being impacted. Could we give some kind of bullet point statements as we prepare for this to be the last question? Uh, we need to wind down in just a moment. But thoughts that you might have? The first thought that I have is that he's, he's self-medicating. He's doing what he can do or what he thinks he knows to do with that loss, that incredible loss in his life. So um, just to understand that that's just his way of taking care of himself, which is an unhealthy way of taking care of himself, and then just being there for him, being the relationship that he needs, um, that he hasn't had in his father, but he has a mother, um, and so to, to be his support by being his friend. Hmm. Yeah, and I was thinking too, um, I wondered who the question was, if it was the person asking or the parent, and there's probably mom, there's not much you can do to make the adult son want to have their change experience. I mean, so really what you can do is take the best care of yourself to, to be the mom for him while not trying to make up for what the dad didn't do right. Mm. Because the, the son will figure it out when he's ready and if mom, you can keep your position as mom and not try to fix what dad didn't do. 
Thank you. Thank you. Would you join me in thanking our panel for their wonderful presentation? And thank you. I just get so enthused I, hearing you all speak. Thank you is just uh, very, very insightful. I'm, I was learning tonight as I'm sitting here as well. I appreciate learning from the three of you. And I just want to mention as we get ready to uh, complete, complete this evening or conclude is that Depression and Stress Busters is our January 2nd apropos for right after Christmas. I think Robin and I have already spent all of our money and more uh, even before Christmas here preparing our kids for Christmas and things. But if you have friends or those that would like to look at this very important topic, depression and stress busters, I believe you have a copy of this uh, in your hand and that you could take that with you. We're going to have a word of prayer, and I want to thank you before we do uh, for coming this evening. Uh, one of the uh, uh, pleasures or privileges, I should say, that I have of inviting other therapists to join us is that actually they come, uh, it's, it's one way they get back to the community, actually, as they come and share with us. We have a phenomenal listing of audio tapes of sessions just like tonight on our website here at Skyline that you can connect to and listen to at your leisure or invite others to perhaps a topic that someone is struggling with even today. Uh, but I'm so thankful for our therapist, and as they come, it's one way that we can showcase therapist. and it may be you were listening tonight, you thought, I, oh, I, I think I could get help, and maybe I could work with that person or feel comfortable. Um, they are going to be in the back. Their cards are back there, and I hope that you'll take an opportunity after the prayer. Uh, they will step down quickly, and, and we'll be able to meet you in the back. So thank you for coming this evening. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we always honor you with the Word of God, which is alive, and it's really active in, in all of our lives. We, we thank you, Father, that even in the Bible, you did not answer all of the perplexing relationship questions, yet you provided all the truths that we need to and to apply to relationships. So we thank you for that this evening, and thank you for these relationship specialists who've joined us and, and how you've helped us, Father. We pray that what will bring honor to you and health in these people's lives will be etched in stone in memory and accessible and useful to them, and would somehow in your divine intervention you prevent us from remembering that which is not helpful or, or would not bring honor. Uh, not that anything was said like that, but we pray for your will be to be done in each of our lives. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of uh, trying to understand human nature. It's an amazing journey. It's a wonder that you've created those of us, we humans. So we thank you this evening. Bless each and every one of us. As we now leave, we know that you leave with us and that you want the best for each of us. And you're working on each of our behalfs as we leave this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless and have a great, great evening.